Hello there, I keep hearing about heritage apple varieties and I have so many questions. Yes, it's me, Michelle Cortens, back with another episode of Orchard Outlook. And isn't this one timely around the holiday season when you might kick back and enjoy a hard cider or two? But don't get distracted by this fermented drink's alluring yellow to amber color. In this episode, we'll focus on production systems and considerations if you want to dabble in specialty varieties. Just wait and see, you might find it sobering or refreshing. Today's guest is going to filter through the horticultural practices to give us a taste of growing fruit for hard cider. He's well known for his interest in this ancient beverage. A common thread across his research is to facilitate economic sustainability in the tree fruit industry. He was awarded Grower Advocate of the Year in 2018 by the American Cider Association. So joining us is Dr. Gregory Peck. Hello, thanks for joining me. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So were you always a cider connoisseur or did your interest in horticulture end up leading you into cider? My interests were really in terms of horticulture um, about sustainability. I did a lot of research on organic apple production in both Washington State and New York State. And at one point during my PhD, where I was comparing organic systems and conventional systems in New York, my PhD advisor said, well, if you're going to keep messing around with organic apples, you better learn how to ferment them because you're going to have a lot of extras. And, um, and in fact, it, it's probably true for organic, and, and I still work a lot on organic, and I think we're getting a lot better on that. But I, it kind of piqued my interest. I started making cider as a hobby. You know, started out with just a couple carboys in, in my basement, and then, you know, I had 10 carboys going at some point. When I started my first faculty job at Virginia Tech, some of the growers approached me and said, hey, you know, we're getting, we're getting asked by cider producers to grow cider apples. And what do you think about that? And, and I said, well, I, I don't know. Let's, let's start talking about this and figure out what they want you to grow and what the economics are behind it. And that was about 2011, and that was really when the cider industry in the U.S. started to become something of, uh, of an industry, more than just um, a producer here or a producer there. Okay. And I should probably back up here a second. What is your, your role now, and where are you actually based out of? So I'm an assistant professor of horticulture. I work at Cornell University. I'm in the School of Integrative Plant Science. Okay. And so you have done a lot of research with cider apple varieties. Is there a clear distinction between a cider apple and a dessert apple? There is, and um, and there also isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so, let's think about this a little bit. In order to make cider, what do you need? Well, um, you're making an alcoholic product, and 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 let's just be clear on our terminology today too. Is is that we. Um, when I say cider, and I think when you're saying cider, we're talking about hard cider. We're talking about the fermented beverage, not right. what we call in the U.S. sweet cider or in other parts of the world, they just call it juice. But we're talking about fermented um, apple juice. In order to make cider, what do you need? Well, you need sugar, right? Yeast, take sugar, convert it into ethanol and CO2, the CO2 leaves. And, and the ethanol is what we want for um you know, to have a nice, pleasant experience with our adult beverage. And all apples contain fermentable sugars. So any apple can be fermented and made into cider, right? So very broadly, 
any Apple counts. But then we start getting into specifics and we start saying, well, what kind of finished product can you make from these different types of apples, right? So uh, just as in, I use this analogy all the time, and I talk about grapes, right? So if you take any grape, you can ferment it and turn it into wine. But we know there's a very strong difference between the type of wine you make from, um, from a Concord grape versus Pinot Noir, right? right? And so the type of apple that you're going to use for making your cider is going to greatly affect the finished product. And so the producers really need to think about what's the, what's the goal? What kind of product do they want to make? And once they know that, then they can backtrack and say, what kind of cider apples or what kind of apples do I need? And so a cider apple can be a lot of different things. And as I said, it can be anything like a culinary apple, but it could also be apples that are not found in our main apple growing regions in North America, right? Apples that aren't going to be found in the supermarket. And that's because they contain certain attributes, certain chemical properties that are frankly unpleasant to consume as a fresh apple or even as a straight juice before it's fermented. And so these typically are tannins and um, acidity, right? So all apples have some level of both. But if we get into the specialized cider apples, a lot of them have a very high concentration of one or both of those quality attributes. Okay. Is there anything, any other traits that cider makers like to look for in apples? You know, so in my research, we look at all these different aspects of apple juice quality, right? So we look at not just the tannins, and, and, and we even go into that and we start saying, well, what, what you know, tannins is this uh, functionally derived term for a subset of polyphenols um, that historically had been used for tanning animal hide to turn it into leather, right? That's what tannin comes from, that term. But um, because of that, the same chemical attributes that it allows those polyphenols allow for tanning um, animal hide, they also bind to proteins in our saliva. And so they make this mouthfeel that's dry. It causes astringency. Sometimes it's bitterness, depending on the size of the molecule. And so these tannins, we have the acids, but then there's sugars, right? And so there's different types of sugars that we're interested in. And of course, fermentable sugars, things like uh, fructose and glucose, but then also apples contain sorbitol. And so sorbitol is um, the end product of photosynthesis for a lot of rosaceae species, including apples. The interesting thing about sorbitol is that it is a non-fermentable sugar. And so that's kind of cool, right? Because you think, well, maybe that, is that a negative or a positive? Well, it's actually, it can be a positive if you're trying to make a cider with a natural residual sweetness to it, natural residual sugar, because that sorbitol content will last through the fermentation. It's not going to be fermented by the yeast. So you get a little bit of natural sweetness out of the product. So that's one thing. Another would be aromatics, the, 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 the flavors and the smells that you get in the cider. And, you know, just like with a wine grape, what it tastes like as a grape or even as an unfermented juice is different what it tastes like as a finished wine. The same is true with with apples turning into cider. However, we know that there are um, precursors 
in the apples that will lead to certain uh, flavor or smell attributes in the finished product. So we can look for those. And then another quality attribute that we um, don't think about from a sensory perspective directly, but indirectly, and also in terms of the health of the yeast during fermentation is the nitrogen content of the juice. So just like all living things, yeast need nitrogen, right? Building blocks of proteins and DNA and, and all those important um, molecules within plants and, and yeast as well. And so different apple cultivars can have different concentrations and even composition of amino acids that are used for by yeast for fermentation. And so we've done some work looking at, you know, which varieties have different amino acids. And then we've also done some work recently to try to increase the concentration of these different nitrogen compounds. Okay. So if you start to find some specialized cider varieties that look promising, what are some of the production challenges if a grower might start to use those varieties? Right. So we're talking about the fruit quality attributes, and it's really important to find apples that have these great fruit quality attributes. But what we don't want is an apple that has great fruit quality attributes, but it's awful to grow. Right. right? I'm a horticulturalist. <laughs> and we find that, in fact, um, a lot of the European cider apples that we've experimented with here in the U.S. are very difficult to grow. Many of them are very biennial in their bearing habit, meaning that they'll have a high yield in one year and a low yield the next and kind of flip-flop like that over time, which if you think about it from a producer's perspective, that can be very difficult, right? If you're expecting a certain quantity of a certain apple to make your product and you can't make it in some years because you're not going to have that fruit, that's a problem. And some of these are very extremely biennial. And um, we think about, you know, growers who listen to your show, you probably talk about Honeycrisp, right? Honeycrisp is um, one of the poster children for biennial bearing. And I'd say some of these cider varieties that we've played with would make Honeycrisp look like a dream to grow. Oh, no. They're so biennial. They're either, they're either on or they're off. There's nothing, not even a single flower on the tree. Wow. So biennial bearing is a really big issue and something that we're looking at. We actually have some research projects looking at trying to mitigate the biennial bearing habit of cider apple varieties and seeing if we can try to, to manage some of these extreme, extremely biennial varieties to become more annual. And, and so we're finishing up um, a three-year project looking at that right now. Would that be like putting plant growth regulators into the management system? Yeah, absolutely. So culinary apple growers are, you know, for the most part comfortable and, and rely on a lot of different chemicals to thin their apple trees. Um, and so we've, we're looking at some of those, but even just trying to understand what the crop load should be on a cider apple tree, right? Because again, we talked about quality attributes in terms of juice quality, but if we also think about it, you know, one of the biggest quality attributes for culinary apples is size, right? And that's one of the re main reasons that we, we thin, right? We want to control biannual bearing, but we also want to have a large enough apple that it can make it to market. For cider, because really matter how big the fruit is, it's all going to get milled and then pressed. We're thinking, well, can we have higher crop loads but not 
so extreme that we have biennial bearing. And so where is that tipping point? And that's really where we're at with our first series of projects is to try to understand um, what's our target? What, what should we be looking for for a crop load for cider apple varieties? Interesting. So what are some other challenges? One of the big issues with cider apples that especially the, a lot of the European and um, mostly will be pointing towards English and, and French cider apples is that they tend to bloom late. And that's because they were probably selected to do so. And in the regions where they were originally selected and identified as being worthwhile um, cider apples to grow, they didn't have fire blight, right? Fire blight is an endemic organism to North America, Erwinia amylivora. So when they selected these varieties, they didn't have fire blight. They were looking towards late blooming varieties that would bloom after most of the frost had stopped, right? So late blooming was actually a positive attribute. However, in our climate, in, in eastern North America, when you plant these varieties that are late blooming, the temperatures are typically warmer, and therefore we're more likely to have a fire blight infection, right? Because one of the main contributing factors to having a really bad infection is warm temperatures during bloom. So kind of interesting, right? You know, if we look towards um, Europe, for what we want to grow here, we might find a lot of really cool genotypes in terms of juice quality, but they may not be the best for our climate in terms of horticultural performance or disease management. Yeah, we feel your pain with the fire blight risk. Got the same issue here. <laughs> it is terrible. So is it economical to grow these cider apple varieties? Right. So I mentioned earlier, you know, when I first got into doing research on cider apples, that was that was one of the first problems that we tackled, right? If we're going to really try to grow a lot of these um, these varieties, you know, is it worthwhile, right? Can we convince commercial apple growers to make a decision, right? They're, they have an opportunity cost, right? Are they going to plant a Honeycrisp or are they going to plant a Dabinet? And so we... We did some modeling. I worked with ag economists at Virginia Tech, and I've since done a, a number of subsequent studies here at Cornell with ag economists. And in fact, it can be profitable to grow cider apples so long as they are still in um, low supply and high demand, right? This macroeconomics theory here. And currently, there's just very little production um, more each year, we're seeing an increase every year. More people are planting these cider-specific varieties, but for the most part, there's more demand by cider producers than what's being grown by apple growers, and so that keeps the price up. Um, our first studies, we found that at about 29 cents a pound, so that'd be U.S. dollars, that's that was kind of the threshold. If you could receive a price over 29 cents a pound, then that would be a, um, it would be profitable to plant and grow cider apples. And in fact, we saw that many of the people who had these varieties, especially you know nine, ten years ago, they were receiving prices of up to 80 cents a pound. Okay. And and that price has come down. I'd say. 
Um, I've heard of a lot of cider apples being sold for about 35 cents a pound now mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, and it really depends, you know, for years different. The pricing, it's such a new commodity, and there's so many um, relationships. There's so many different models that are being formed in terms of, of how people are growing, buying, selling these that I hear all different sorts of prices being thrown about. For now, it's still profitable. Now, we did another study. We published this in the Fruit Quarterly, and your listeners can find this online for free if they just Google Fruit Quarterly, and it's a journal put out by um, Cornell University for our growers. And we did a study looking at uh, case studies of six different cider apple orchards in our state, in New York State, and we found that uh, five of the six are profitable, but number six um, was not. And and the reason why number six was not was really twofold. One was they were attempting to grow cider apples in a very, very high-density system, lots of infrastructure, um, a lot of trees per acre, uh, very similar to what is needed for growing high-quality fruit for the supermarket. And secondly, they were in a region of, of our state that had very high land prices and very high labor costs. And so their their cost of production was just too high and that they could not overcome that even with growing fruit in a very high density system that was very productive. Is it a good choice to grow cider varieties on dwarfing rootstocks in high density systems? Okay, so this is a great question, and and we talked a little bit about the economics of it, and in some sense, you know, there might be a point at which it becomes too expensive, right? The orchard system is requires too much infrastructure for a processing fruit. That said, a lot of growers, especially early on in in the cider uh, revolution, you know, um, a decade to two decades ago were thinking they had to plant cider apples on large rootstocks. And I don't think that's true. I think we can we can find a happy medium where we're using the technology and the practices that we've learned for producing um, high yields in, in culinary apples and apply that to cider apple orchards. You know, the benefits of dwarfing rootstock include things like uh, precocity, right? We're starting to get fruit at year three and getting into full production year five or six versus using larger rootstocks where, you know, you're not really into full production, you know, for another two or three years after that year, seven, eight, nine. And with the lack of supply for these cider apples, I'd say getting fruit produced earlier is going to be a benefit economically for a grower, but also other things that, you know, like, um, better spray coverage when you're going through with the air blast sprayer. Easier to do things such as kerning, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, harvesting as well. Now, thinking about, again, mechanical harvesting, is there a, a point, right? This is kind of one of the questions we're looking at in my, my program is, is there a type of orchard system that is taking advantage of the precocity of these dwarfing rootstocks and all the benefits that they bring but maybe designed a little bit differently because we're going to be mechanically harvesting fruit. So we don't have to think about ladders as much and maybe a little bit taller of a tree and a little bit less densely planted might be a possibility. Okay. Good to know. 
And so are you doing research on like how to increase production and quality of these cider varieties? Yes, we do a lot of research on that. And research in my program, I've mentioned a few projects, you know, we're looking at how to manage the crop load on cider apple varieties. We're looking at how to manage nitrogen dynamics. Um, we have a number of different variety trials, just trying to experiment and figure out how to grow some of these different varieties. We have plans underway for uh, some rootstock trials to see if rootstocks affect food quality and productivity, and also with an eye towards mechanical harvesting, right? So I mentioned earlier that labor costs were really one of the things that made it um, unsustainable to grow cider apples and, and, you know, for this one orchard. And so if we can remove labor costs, particularly harvest labor costs, which is about, you know, a third of the operating budget for an orchard each year, um, that would be very significant. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's the way it's done in most of Europe, right? Most of the cider apple orchards in Europe are mechanically harvested. And we just need to get there in our region. And that will, will make these apples a lot more affordable. Okay. And so say somebody wants to start dabbling in cider varieties, do you have any other horticultural traits that they need to consider? You know, it's, boy, there's so many. I mean, we have a, we have this great resource here that's near Ithaca in Geneva, New York, run by the uh, U.S. Department of Ag, and it's the, um, the Apple uh, Germplasm Collection. And that collection is almost 5,000 different apple varieties and we've been working with um, colleagues and identifying cider apple varieties that are in that collection. We have a list now, running list of a little bit over 350 varieties that had been specifically noted in historical literature or currently being used by producers for making hard cider. So the 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 number of potential Varieties to try is huge. So how do we narrow that down to something that is, um, you know, well, okay, you got a grower and, and, and they want to try something. And so we have a list of about six that we like and think that it's, it's worthwhile to try. And, you know, your listeners can reach out to me if they want and I can share that information. Um, I'll just ramble off a few that we like. Um, Porter's Perfection is one. That's done really well for us in trials. Okay. It has both tannins and acidity. It's a fairly annual uh, producer. It tends to bloom uh, more in line with gala, so it doesn't have this late blooming leading to fire blight issue. Okay. So that's one. We really like Yarlington Mill for its uh, juice quality attributes. It tends to be a little bit more biennial but it makes a really spectacular cider. I'd say something similar for Harry Masters Jersey. Now, one that um, I was really strong on up until about two years ago, and I'm feeling somewhat trepidatious about, is Dabinet. Dabinet is a English variety. It's actually the most widely grown cider apple in, in England. And um, I've seen some plantings of it here in North America that are beautiful. And we've we've had some issues with it. We've had issues with winter hardiness, and we think that when the trees are really young, that they tend to be very susceptible to cold temperatures, and that that can cause issues. And we've also noticed that um, even though it's not a particularly late bloomer, that it seems to have a little bit more susceptibility to fire blight. 
but I would still say we're we're still trying Dabinet, and I haven't discounted it, but that's definitely still on my list. That's good to know. <laughs> uh, and I'd say you know there's a lot of varieties that are have disease resistance that might work for organic growers. Things that have um, high acidity, maybe not as high as, as tannin content, but Liberty, uh, Enterprise, Gold Rush are three that come to mind in terms of can make a really nice bright cider, and maybe they can be um, some tannins could be added in a small quantity from a different apple, or maybe even just a high acid cider is something that the market for your you know for the cider producers in your region might like. Uh, we're finding that in the fingerless region. A lot of the cider producers here are making high acid ciders because that's the types of apples that they're able to grow and that they're able to um, buy from the commercial orchardists. And what does the cider industry look like in New York State, and do you know where it's headed? So New York right now has about 100 cider producers. There are around 850 towards 1,000 in the entire country. So we have a good number of them in New York right now. We're a very strong cider industry. We have a very strong cider association that's helping to support the producers here in terms of government regulations and um, now with COVID-related things, looking towards how do they market and sell in, in this during the pandemic. Our producers make a range of products, um, everything from products that have other types of fruit added, other flavorings added that are made from, uh, I would say, seconds from the processing industry or seconds, you know, fruit that wouldn't make supermarket grade, to um, a lot of small-scale producers that are making a wine-like product that are trying to use these very high tannin, high acid apples. They're selling in 750 mil bottles, like a champagne-style bottle, and trying to get prices similar to wine as opposed to trying to um, compete against beer, right? So cider kind of always fits somewhere in between. Is it cider in a can and is it competing against beer? Or is it cider in a bottle and is it competing against wine? And the cider producers are always trying to fit, figure out where their niche is and where where their profitability is going to lay. And so, you know, I don't do a whole lot of work with that. I just kind of watch that from afar. I'd say in terms of the apple production, we're seeing a lot of interest from our growers. And in fact, um, a recent survey of our growers asking them what are they looking to plant in the next three or four years. And about 18% of the orchards that are going to go into the ground over the next few years are going to be for cider production, which is just, I, when I heard that, I, I, I had to ask, I think I asked like three times, are you sure? <laughs> because it's like, well, that's really pretty fantastic. And, and I think clearly, you know, apple growers are, are business people and they are looking, you know, they're not going to plant something that isn't going to potentially have a decent enough profit margin for them. And, and so enough people have looked at this and said, I think there's something here. And there's um, some of them are making long-term arrangements, uh, developing contracts with producers, very similar to the wine industry, right? Some of the Finger Lakes wineries have these long-term arrangements with the the grape growers. And they say, okay, you're your vineyard is very special. You have this, you know, Pinot Noir on this particular slope and this type of soil, and and they're willing to work with the grower to make sure that the grower is successful in, in growing the fruit and that the 
winemaker is successful in making their wine. And we're starting to see those sorts of relationships happen in New York for the cider industry as well. Very cool. And it kind of helps to diversify the orchard if they, you know, find that they want to expand that way. Yes, absolutely. Well, so what other opportunities are there for growers? We're seeing lots of opportunities for growers. And I'd say one of the really exciting stories of the cider industry is watching the next gen, right? The the generation of of uh, children go back to the farm, and I think we 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 lost that for a long time, where the sons and daughters of of the farmers of the apple growers were largely looking towards careers elsewhere, right? Things that were not on the farm, didn't want to do what mom and dad and grandma and grandpa had done, and maybe go into tech or finance or what have you. And cider, interestingly enough, is bringing a lot of these next-gen um, kids back to the farm. And they say, well, I don't want to do what you did. What I want to do is start a cidery. And we've seen this a number of times in New York State, and, and I've heard stories about this in other parts of the country as well. And I think that's really exciting is that um, this is something that has this whole sociological angle to it because it's going to not only – um, increase sustainability of that farm, but that farming community is going to bring in agritourism dollars. There's a lot of associated benefits to the cider industry. And a lot of these operations then become vertically integrated, right? It's um, part of the operation is, is growing the apples, and then they have another part of the operation then which is making and selling cider. We are, as I mentioned before, seeing you know some growers developing contracts and arrangements with cider producers. Um, we have some very large cider producers in New York State that are looking towards buying volume, and we'd really like to see you know, more and more acres go in the ground because they think that they could really use it, whereas right now they might be sourcing apple juice concentrate from overseas, and they would rather have a domestic supply chain. So I think there's still opportunity, and I think um, you know, there's still a lot to learn. I think you know, 10 years in or so of really this the um, this explosion, this growth in the cider industry, it, it's still very young. We're still learning a lot about what we can do horticulturally, and I think a lot of cider producers are figuring out what they can do in terms of cider styles and also markets. But um, but I think it's exciting, and I think the future is really bright. Cool. Yeah, I'd almost describe the feeling as bittersweet. Just a little bitter about some of the challenges, but sweet that there's some opportunity out there. Well done, yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was great to talk to you. I uh, really learned a lot. Thanks, Michelle. Really appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter at NSTreeFruit and follow Perennia on Facebook and Twitter at NSPerennia. Thanks to Perennia for adding flavor to the podcast scene. Thank you to Patty Ryan for her sharp design skills, and to Rachel Brown for processing the raw ingredients of this episode into a sweet treat. Thanks for submitted questions from Dr. Sean Miles. And of course, thanks to growers for their interest. Here's a fun fact. When life on the Atlantic coast throws us hurricanes, some of our growers choose to make hurricane cider. Bye, thanks for listening, and please remember to rate and subscribe. Mm-hmm.